Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Before we get into our talk today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Cindy W., Dave V., Todd A., and John B. Dr. Keith Barron is on the show today. Keith is CEO and chairman of Ariana Resources, an Ecuador-focused gold, silver, copper exploration company. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol ARU and on the U.S. OTC markets under the symbol A-U-I-A-F. The audience might be familiar with Keith's past venture called Aurelian Resources, which delineated the Fruta del Norte discovery in southeastern Ecuador, which was bought by Kendros for about 1.2 billion Canadian, of course, now being built out and commissioned by Lundin Gold. Mr. Barron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And by the way, it's Orania. Uh, it means uh, in, in bad Latin, it means land of gold. <laughs> Oh, excellent. You know, I hacked that, Keith, and I, I apologize, and uh, I should have uh, put my, my Spanish uh, <laughs> uh, lingo in here and, and gotten that correct. I, I apologize. <laughs> I'll try to get it right as we go through. <laughs> no worries. So, Keith, uh, take us back to the early geologist days, and perhaps even before that. Uh, what attracted you to minerals, and then why did you take it all the way to the publicly listed company stage? Well, gosh, you know, I've been a geologist for 36 years now. Um, I have a PhD in geology, so I've been been around it for a long, long time. Um, this is uh, actually country number 19 for me, uh, living and working, and um, so it's uh, it's certainly nothing nothing new to me. Um, I first went to Ecuador in 1998, and uh, it's a bit of a funny story. Uh, I won't. Uh, uh, go through it all with you because we won't have time. But <laughs> essentially, I went to Ecuador to improve my Spanish because uh, I was living in Venezuela at the time and Chavez was coming up for election. And my lawyers advised me to uh, get out of Dodge, so to speak, uh, because they thought there would be a lot of fighting in the streets. And lo and behold, there was. And uh, I kind of... Uh, uh, wondered uh, aloud where I was going to go, and um, a friend of mine had been to Ecuador uh, to study at a Spanish school, and I thought, hey, why not uh, uh, do that for a month until things settled down? And so um, that's what I did. I'd never been to Ecuador before in my whole life. I didn't know anything about it except the fact that uh, it, it lies on the equator, so, uh, hence the name. Um, but uh, the geology uh, was really... Uh, uh, I, I didn't have a, a, a very firm grasp of the geology, though I picked it up very quickly. And uh, lo and behold, ended up uh, creating a company uh, privately in 2001, which was uh, Aurelian. And then in 2006, making a, a massive uh, gold discovery of, um, of almost uh, 14 million ounces. And then, uh, then the company was sold in, in, in 2008. Um, I wondered what I was going to do after that and thought about it for a little while and decided, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to go back and uh, uh, set up another project. So I went back to Ecuador 
But this time I was working with a professor of history who I had met on my very first visit back in 98. And the two of us uh, went out uh, uh, specifically to find uh, two lost gold settlements, lost mines of the Spanish conquistador days. Uh, hence the name of our project, which is uh, the Lost Cities Kudaku Project. So um, that's what we ended up doing. We uh, did a paper chase in um, really all the archives of the world that contain information relating to the uh, the age of, of uh, colonialism in South America. So we spent, uh, well, a couple of years in the archive of the Indies in Seville in Spain. Uh, we made several trips to the Vatican and we actually found a book uh, in the manuscript library of the Vatican uh, written in 1628 which gave very, very good details uh, of how to get to, to one of the lost cities. And so um, based on that, there had been a, uh, um, a moratorium on getting new property in Ecuador uh, on the books for eight years. And so during this eight-year period, uh, this is when I, I did the research, actually visited the field five times uh, with uh, a couple of colleagues. And um, and so when the uh, the magic day came, uh, when they uh, released uh, what they called the mining cadastro, the mining registry, and allowed uh, uh, new filings to take place, uh, we were poised and ready at 12.01 at night, uh, while everyone else was at a cocktail party at the Prospectors Convention in, in Toronto, and, uh, and banged the coordinates in for uh, 208,000 hectares, roughly well, more than half a million acres. And we got the whole thing. Everyone woke up next morning and they said, good God, what has Baron done? <laughs> and um, that became the uh, really the cornerstone property for uh, what we're doing today in Arania. Well, you went through a lot and I won't comment on all of it, but I can tell you I've seen the video series that you put together and it really is fascinating, uh, the approach and style that you have there. And then answer this one for me. Is there anybody else in this industry and in this sector that is doing what you're doing on the history side and taking taking history and applying it towards your projects in Ecuador? Well, certainly not in Ecuador, but it has been done uh, before in other places in the world. Uh, there's one company, I, I won't mention the name, but they, they went after uh, looking for uh, gold deposits in the Nubian desert of, of Egypt uh, really going back to the time of the Queen of Sheba, uh, mentioned in the Bible, and uh, and and found uh, some gold deposits. Um, so this is not uh, uh, this is not by any means unique. Um, people have uh, have traced back uh, things through the writings of the Greeks and the Romans, and, and found lost mines as well. Uh, I think we're well. We're certainly the only ones doing it in 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 Ecuador. And in my former company, Aurelian, we actually did find a Spanish working. Um, I found it uh, mentioned in that manuscript from the Vatican years, years after we, we discovered it. Uh, so it was a place called Condor, and it had been destroyed and abandoned in 1619. But what we found in the field was a squared tunnel that went back for about 100 feet into the hillside 
and uh, you could see the pick marks on the the chisel marks on the walls. And we knew it was Spanish because the uh, the indigenous people and the Inca uh, didn't have anything harder than bronze. So uh, these uh, this is obviously uh, done with steel, um, and um, it was perfectly squared at the corners, uh, at the top, and um, but unfortunately not a lot of gold in the area. <laughs> Fascinating. I, I just, I think it's, I just don't think in this day that you have the companies in this sector that are going back that far and spending the time like you have highlighted with, with the story of, of your company that you have going now. And so I just, I just think it's fascinating to see the different style, the different approach. And of course, uh, the land package is massive. I, I'm, I'm, trying to figure out uh, who has a bigger land package in this sector in Ecuador. I think it's, uh, is it yourself or? Uh, I think maybe we're tied for first, uh, but the other company in question uh, has a number of postage stamp uh, pieces. Uh, we've got one, one big contiguous uh, swath of ground with no holes in it. So that's what really distinguishes us. Now, we went into this area and it has no modern database. There has never been a a mining company in this area. Uh, We know that it was very, very roughly surveyed by Shell Oil back in 1969. Um, But of course, they were not focused on minerals. And, um, you know, we found things on the surface that that the conquistadors would certainly have, have never dreamed of. So uh, it's uh, now it's finally starting to, to yield up its riches, and um, gosh, we've got a we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but uh, we've made a lot of strides so far. Well, certainly fascinating. Well, I'd take a crack at the Egypt company you mentioned, but I'll I'll save that for later, just for the sake of time. So, <laughs> yeah. how, how do you view natural resources, environment, and mining today? What's kind of your big picture? view from your side? Well, um, the population of the world is uh, is growing um, every hour of every day, and um, and people need uh, minerals to, uh, to live a, a modern lifestyle. Um, and uh, in places like India, uh, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, um, parts of China, uh, you're getting um, a middle class emerging, and the the middle class wants uh, consumer goods like everyone else has in the rest of the world, and so that means things like um, uh, washing machines, air conditioners, television sets, and uh, and all the infrastructure that goes to uh, convey uh, electricity to uh, to these various places. So um, I think really what we're seeing now. Like, for instance, in the copper business, um, copper is a, a very important uh, commodity for our company because we're finding a lot of it uh, all over the place. And we can talk about that in, in a second or two. But uh, with the, the new renaissance of, of electric vehicles, uh, it doesn't uh, take a, a person with a PhD to figure out that um, there is going to be a massive, massive demand for copper in the future, uh, not just only for electric vehicles, but also for conducting the electricity to all the charging stations that will need to be put in around the world. So this is an incredible thing, you know, and uh, uh, politicians blithely 
uh, talk about uh, on the TV and uh, and uh, and sign documents into law saying that uh, there's going to be a requirement after X number of years that we we do away with gasoline-driven vehicles. Um, but uh, nobody really thinks about hey, where is the copper going to come from uh, in in those vehicles? Uh, an electric uh, electric vehicle uh, right now, a Tesla three. Uh, has 103 kilos of, of copper in it uh, versus a conventional uh, gasoline-powered car that has about 25. Um, so we're we're talking about a massive, massive difference here, and uh, and and so obviously the copper is going to have to come from somewhere. Uh, some people, uh, the one one uh, statistic that gets quoted quite a bit is that uh, going forward we're going to be consuming one Escondida every year, um, and Escondida is the largest copper uh, deposit that we have uh, that's operating today. And um, so we'll be consuming one of those every year. We'll have to find a new one every year uh, going forward. So that's uh, incredible. And um, on the gold story, um, I think uh, it, it's pretty well appreciated that we've reached a situation of what we call peak gold. Um, so uh, here, from here on out, really the, um, the production worldwide is going to be dropping uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, some of this is um, due to neglect um, companies not spending uh, the the expiration, not putting money into expiration as they should have, and you know there's a huge time lag between uh, finding a deposit and actually putting it in production and starting to pour ounces. But nevertheless, and, and taking that out of the equation, uh, a lot of the low hanging fruit uh, has been has been picked, has been plucked. Um, the easy deposits on the surface have been found. Most of the world with the exception of this area where we're working right now, uh, which is a real anomaly, uh, most of the world has already been uh, walked over by many, many geologists, and uh, and mining camps are quite mature. And so you see situations like in, in South Africa now, which was the world leader in gold production, is dropped, I think, to position number five now. I'm not sure, something like that. But um, this is what's happened. It's uh, it's uh, gold gold mines are uh, are finite, and uh, at some point uh, the gold runs out, and then you have to go elsewhere and find another one. And it's uh, it's getting harder and more expensive all the time. So uh, the demand, of course, is still there uh, for gold, and gold has not lost its luster, and it's certainly uh, intrinsically. Um, valuable and, and appreciated by many, many cultures around the world and will always, I think, uh, be valuable. And and uh, today you see uh, a huge uh, rise in, in the number of central banks that are actually buying gold again, uh, which is a phenomenon that we haven't seen uh, on this scale for a number of years. And they're, they're buying it to really uh, get away from the, the hegemony of the American dollar and um, so, uh, you know, gold demand is healthy. Silver demand is healthy. Um, silver, of course, is used in electronics and, and it's used uh, very much so in, in solar panels. And that consumption is just going up and up and up. 
and um, and most of the base metals are uh, are also um, you know uh, there's healthy uh, not uh, well there there there's very healthy usage going on so um, I'm I'm very bullish about the the mining business in future uh, I'm just uh, very very glad and I think blessed to, that uh, I'm in a a piece of property in Ecuador that uh, seems to be uh, so stuffed full of uh, of various metals. Well, well summarized. I really appreciate uh, you offering us uh, some of your views on that. So let's get to a place that's not so healthy. Where are we today in the natural resource cycle in terms of market sentiment, capital deployment, and pricing of things like base and precious metals? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, just maybe it was yesterday, um, gold hit an all-time high in Australian dollars. I believe today it's at an all-time high in about 70 different currencies worldwide. Uh, it is certainly not at an all-time high in American dollars, and people are focused uh, on that, and I think unjustly so. Uh, you know, the Australian companies are making money hand over fist because obviously they're paid in American dollars and their costs are in Australian dollars. And if the Australian dollar is depreciating against the American dollar, they're doing very, very well. Um, and that's the case uh, for a, a, a lot of other uh, places like South Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the market for uh, gold equities in, in Australia is very, very strong at the moment. Uh, in Canada, it's a different situation altogether, and part of it is because um, the investing, investing public is still enamored with uh, cryptocurrencies and with cannabis. And um, I think both of them have had their day. Um, I think that uh, notwithstanding uh, Facebook talking about bringing in the Libra now, um, which I think personally is going to be a flop, but that's just my opinion. Um, I think uh, cannabis, we've, we're seeing a, a lot of consolidation now, and, and the easy money's already been made. Um, what we need are a couple of um, nice big discoveries. Um, gold discoveries would be nice, but they can be anything really in, in terms of, of, of metals uh, to really jumpstart this market again. Um, you know, I, I always tell people that, uh, you know, where we made the discovery with Aurelion uh, way back when, that, that company went from $0.30 cents to $43. Uh, it was a hell of a, hell of a win for, for all the investors. And, uh, you know, we turned a, a piece of, of basically worthless uh, jungle into something worth in excess of $20 billion dollars. Um, it's going to be uh, more than 3% of the GDP uh, when the mine gets going this September, October. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's an incredible thing. You know, it's, uh, there's, uh, there's nothing out there, uh, nothing else uh, where you can take uh, something that's uh, essentially intrinsically worthless and, and, and then turn it into cash, uh, you know, an incredible uh, pile of cash. And uh, and this is through the discovery process. I'm not talking about through the mining process. I'm talking about discovery, and that's what my company does. And, and we're focused on on exploration and not on production. Production is a whole different uh, ball game. Of course, there are many companies out there making a lot of money uh, through producing uh, gold. 
um, but there are some that are just getting by and there are some that are not making money. And, and it's all got to do with the quality of the ore body and where it is. And, well, there's a number of factors. Uh, you know, the the market still has a, a ways to go in uh, on in Canada on the TSX and the TSXV. Um, but um, I've been through five cycles personally since I've been in this business. And it can turn on a dime, and when it does, um, it uh, it starts to move very rapidly and very convincingly. Keith, when looking at the sector cast of characters, specifically the junior mining and exploration space, what is your view with regards to how these businesses are ran from a professional standpoint? And is it your view that there are a few good treasures in a kind of a wasteland of, of questionable companies proclaiming to be in the business? <laughs> Uh, well, that's 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 more of an observation than a question, but I, I think it's spot on. Um, there, in in junior mining, there are companies that we call lifestyle companies, and these are companies that go ahead and um, let's say that they raise a half million dollars in, in a private placement, and then uh, management might claw back three hundred thousand of that half million uh, to pay themselves. And, um, you know, they're not really advancing the project anywhere. They're, they're, uh, they're satisfying their lifestyle. And uh, so they can fly uh, uh, first class on, on, on jets and, and so-and-so and stay in the best hotels and, and that. And, and there's, a, unfortunately, a, a rogue element in this business that does that. Um, I don't pay myself a salary. Um, I own 54% of, uh, of Orania, and uh, I'm completely aligned with, uh, with the shareholders. If the shareholders don't make money, I don't make money. Uh, and that's a very, very unique situation. You won't find any other junior out there uh, where the management owns uh, this much of the company. Um, now, uh, so, you know, we, we run a pretty lean and mean tight operation, um, not just on the, um, the cost side, uh, but also how many shares we've got out. Uh, we've got 34 million shares, um, out and, uh, uh, currently, and that's, uh, that's keeping it, uh, nice and tight. And there's a lot of companies out there that are, um, they're well into their uh, 100, 150 million shares out, and uh, they might be languishing at one or two cents. And uh, really, those uh, those folks have uh, a very little room to maneuver. Uh, they've uh, they've had their day, so to speak, um, and um, sometimes it's just through no no fault of their own, uh, their expiration hasn't turned up anything. And um, in order to, to stay alive, they've had to do uh, continuous uh, placements uh, that are, are, are uh, causing dilution in the company. So, you know, uh, there's some people that say playing the junior market is, is kind of like um, throwing darts or like gambling. And uh, I really take offense at that. Um, I've been... I went to university. I st studied very hard. Um, I've uh, I've got a couple of discoveries under my belt, and you know you see people uh, who have done it in the business time and time again. Uh, for instance, David Lowell. 
I think he's found five mines in his career. Uh, the founder of tech exploration, Norman Keevil, found 11 mines. And how is it possible that these people can just be so lucky? Well, they're not lucky. They're they're applying their skills, and um, they uh, they have the know-how and the ability, and uh, and they're able to pull it off more than once. So I've I've fortunately with my uh, former team at Aurelian pulled it off once and found a very good gold gold silver deposit. I think we're poised and ready to uh, to do it again. Uh, possibly on the gold silver side and also on the copper side. So you've spent a good deal of time in Ecuador with notable success, as you as you highlighted. What attracts you to Ecuador, and how much time do you spend there? And why should investors look at investment opportunities with companies like yours in Ecuador? Can you kind of warm them up to Ecuador? Well, um, Ecuador for uh, a number of years was. Um, until fairly recently, and uh, maybe uh, two and a half years ago was really when things started to uh, undergo a change. Uh, the government was socialist, um, and so we saw the, the former president, President Correa, uh, appear on the podium with Hugo Chavez and, and Ahmadinejad, a couple of real rogue elements, and certainly that didn't... Uh, um, that didn't encourage any investment in the company, nor give any, any confidence to, to foreign investors. It just put the willies into them, <laughs> and uh, including myself. Uh, and um, so uh, Correa is now in uh, Belgium. There's a warrant out for his arrest. He can't go back to Ecuador. Uh, the last vice president of, of, of Ecuador, uh, um, Jorge Glass, is uh, uh, was implicated in the Odebrecht scandal, and he's now uh, facing uh, six years of jail. He's in prison, and um, pretty much all the um, socialist elements in the federal government uh, have been purged. They're gone. Um, so now we're looking at uh, uh, a government that's centrist and uh, a much, uh, much more uh, business-friendly. Uh, a lot of the ministers and the vice ministers um, went to school in the United States. They've worked for American corporations or uh, European corporations. They have uh, business credentials to their name. This is very, very different from the apparatchiks who were in, in there before, uh, who were appointees just because of their uh, socialist tendencies. So uh, we've, we've seen a, a, a big difference politically. Um, the much hated windfall profits tax on mining was done away with that's gone um the uh the government has been streamlining uh the way you go from exploration to exploitation to get uh, your actual physical mining permits and um you know the proof is out there that London gold is is fully funded they have 2000 men on site uh, their mill is more than 70% uh, complete now. Um, they're stockpiling from underground, and um, it's a it's a fantastic thing. Um, that would not have been possible under the former government. Um, and now we've got companies like BHP, like Newcrest, like Anglo American, uh, joint venturing and getting their own projects in uh, in Ecuador. So the seniors are back. 
And people say to me all the time, what's the political risk in Ecuador? And I say, well, geez, you know, if the big companies are there, do you think it's very risky? And uh, I, I would uh, argue that it's uh, much more riskier in, in the U.S. right now to have a project because anything that you uh, uh, you get that is clear is close to uh, production in the, in the states, um, you get a bunch of NGOs coming out and, and attacking uh, the Bureau of Land Management or a Department of Environmental Quality or whoever is given the permits out. Uh, as a soft underbelly that they can go and attack. And uh, you find that you've got uh, uh, um, uh, dozens and dozens of court actions that you have to deal with. Um, this is not happening in Ecuador. Uh, in fact, uh, a challenge that was made a couple of months ago um, through the, uh, the Constitution uh, was shut down by the, the president. And he said, uh, I'm not going to have um, less than one uh, one tenth of one percent of the population uh, dictate the rest. Um, the government of Ecuador realizes that their future lies in um, in the extractive industries. It uh, they have relied on oil uh, for for decades now, uh, but every time they um, put their budgets together, they get whipsawed by the price of oil. Uh, because it's extremely volatile and you know if they get some copper porphyry mines going uh, and that's the intention um, and some nice gold mines a copper porphyry mine could have a life of say 40 45 years even longer and this is going to provide a basis and stability to the country that they've never had before their number one export is oil uh, number two, I think, is bananas. Number three is cut flowers. And number four is shrimp. And he heck, how do you build an economy on that? Um, so to have a, a couple of, uh, you know, half a dozen producing copper mines uh, like uh, we have in Chile right now uh, in Ecuador would be a, a wonderful thing for the country. And uh, half a dozen or even a dozen gold mines. Um, there's there's no reason why it can't happen, and certainly uh, the uh, the projects are are being found, and uh, um, and uh, there's there's lots of stuff that's uh, that's coming to light. It's um, Ecuador is kind of uh, a bit of the flavor of the month right now, and rightly so. Well, you can add uh, rum, cigars, and tourism uh, to that bottom tier of that uh, list. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, the extractive industry is key, um, and Ecuador is a is a key jurisdiction, uh, certainly in South America and, and uh, in you know Central and South America. Ecuador is certainly a highlight among those top uh, destinations in my mind. Um, and you're absolutely right with the United States. There's extreme difficulties, and and uh, I can think of a a company in, that has a, a big deposit in Alaska that uh, is going through that process with the Army Corps right now. And it's going to be very interesting to see how that decades-long battle ensues during this cycle. Mm -hmm. Take us back to Aurelian for a moment. Tell us how that developed out. And then tell us about the surprises that you encountered along the way and what key lessons you learned from that experience. Wow. Well, you know, I started it in uh, January of 2001, 
and uh, privately. And people said to me that I was completely insane and that the future was in, in the new era and tech and all the rest of it. And that uh, that gold mining and gold exploration was dead. Now, uh, the very first concession that I acquired, uh, I think it was on April the 17th in 2001, and the price of gold was $252. It was almost at rock bottom. And so um, we really... I myself, I thought to myself, gold cannot go much lower. If it goes any lower in price, we're going to see uh, major gold mining companies in, in around the world going under. Um, so it, it really was at the very rock bottom. Um, so I had a very large land package that grew over time. It started out... Uh, well, only only 400 hectares, but uh, eventually grew it out to 96,000 hectares. Uh, it's less than half the size of what I, I've presently got in in Orania, but never, nevertheless, a very very large uh, package. Um, we had our ups and downs. Um, uh, gold exploration doesn't uh, doesn't result in 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 a bonanza in the first week. Uh, it takes time and it takes energy and it takes money um, to uh, to explore these things. Um, so we had a, a, a number of early uh, successes, but they uh, they ended up uh, falling by the wayside just simply because they weren't large enough um, to be economic commercial deposits. Um, the uh, deposit that we did find, Fruta del Norte, uh, was actually something that um, is called a blind deposit. It does not come to surface, so it was buried by over a hundred meters of of of, uh, of dead rock. Um, but it did have a geochemical uh, expression at the surface. It, there was a, an anomaly of arsenic, antimony, and mercury at the surface that we picked up in our in our surveying. And um, uh, my uh, chief geologist, Steve Leary. Uh, who's uh, he's back on the project working for Lundin now. Um, he's a New Zealander and very skilled and and uh, and proficient in in uh, in epithermal type gold deposits and uh, recognized uh, the geochemical signature for what it was. And um, together, him and I convinced the board um, to uh, to spend the money and put the holes in 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 the ground. Um, the, the, the board was actually very reticent to this because there was no gold on the surface and the, some of the, the board members thought it was a complete and utter waste of time and money. So we hit it, I think it was hole uh, 51 that was drilled in, in 2006. Um, it was the second hole that was, uh, maybe the third hole drilled on that target. Um, but you know, we had a bunch of, I said, hole 51, we had a bunch of other holes that were done elsewhere, uh, on the project, uh, that year that, uh, that didn't come up with the goods. Um, but when we did connect, it was in a very big way. Uh, it was, um, over a hundred meters of, of four grams per ton. Uh, and the stock uh, immediately took off in price. I think we went from 80 cents to four dollars in one day, uh, and then it just kept going because, uh, fortunately, we were very, very blessed. Um, and um, I'm not, 
I'm not a supremely religious man, but I think uh, uh, God was certainly looking after us because this is a blind deposit which lies under, mostly under a sheet of, of sandstone. It doesn't come to the surface. And we were drawing in a straight line um, every 100 meters, uh, you know, more or less 300 feet, and putting a hole just in a straight line. And it was just hitting again and again and again and again and again. Uh, it could have been faulted uh, east, west, north, south, uh, underneath that sandstone cover, and we never would have been able to find it again. But we were able to trace this thing out for a total of 1,300 meters. Uh, in a line, and um, uh, we had one drill hole, which I believe is the richest drill hole that anybody's ever drilled ever in the history of, of mining. Um, it was uh, 250 meters of 35 grand for ton gold. Uh, just fantastic uh, results, and uh, we, we did a compilation looking at uh, other mines like Sleeper out of Nevada and Midas, and we couldn't find anything actually that that compared with a, a grade like this. So it was a incredible win for us. Um, a lot of my shareholders ended up being millionaires, and uh, gosh, it's a, it's it's a very uh, gratifying and a happy uh, thing to. Uh, I visited the the site uh, a couple of months ago, courtesy of Lundin Gold and was able to go underground and it's it's just great to see this thing finally uh starting to come into fruition absolutely fascinating i think it's uh great and i appreciate you you sharing some information and we certainly know the rest of the story with that is there is there anything that you found during that journey that you would uh change or do differently is there something that sticks out in your mind that uh that you want to offer up to us well, there's, you know, exploration doesn't, <laughs> I, I said we just progressed in, in one straight line, <laughs> uh, putting the holes in the ground, but the actual uh, exploration process and what led us to that target, it, things never move in a straight line. It's it's almost fractal. Um, are there things that I would do again? Um, there were things I spent money on that, uh, in retrospect, I wouldn't uh, again. Um, so uh, every uh, every new site, every new prospect is a learning experience, and um, and I also uh, learn from from my employees and my peers and colleagues uh, who have seen things uh, elsewhere in the world that uh, that that look similar. So uh, you have to take all this into account. Um, I think the only thing that we did wrong, uh, we were really a, a victim of our own success because um, there had been no royalty established within Ecuador when we made the discovery. And in March of 2000, and, and um, let me see, it would have been March of two, uh, 2008, uh, no, later on in the year, um, they brought down what was called the uh, mining mandato, and they shut down um, all activity in the mining sector in Ecuador, including Fruta del Norte, for a year and a half. It was supposed to happen for only a month or two. Um, it ended up prolonged because the, the government and the bureaucracy couldn't work fast enough, and they were trying to establish a framework for royalties. Um, and uh, but what they didn't realize is that uh, uh, 
by doing this, they did incredible damage to the industry, uh, and almost all of the companies deserted uh, Ecuador. Um, there were uh, rumors that were unfounded going around that the government was going to nationalize us, nationalize uh, other projects in Ecuador, none of which happened. Um, and um, you know those were those were bad old times. Um, uh, and I certainly don't see anything like that ever, ever happening again. People say to me every so often, well, you know, this happened before, will it happen again? Those people who were in government are long gone. Um, and certainly all you got to do is look a little bit north and see uh, what the experience of socialism has done to the country of Venezuela and uh and certainly uh socialism is not coming back to ecuador uh in uh in any uh reasonable time frame i think it's going to be at least uh several generations before uh, uh the socialist ever get traction again in uh in in government so um i guess that's the only thing that the the only misstep we made um being victims of our own success but now they do have uh, a royalty framework set up in the country. And one of the great things that they have done is that they've designated uh, that 60% of that royalty, which it's sliding scale, can be 5 to 7%. Uh, 60% of that has to go to the local communities. And they're working on legislation right now because the communities are a little bit fearful that they'll never see that money and it's just going to get swallowed by uh, the general accountancy office in 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 uh, in, in Quito um, and go go in the federal coffers. Well, they're they're trying to work out a framework right now by way uh, the local municipalities are going to get the money directly, and this is going to be a real boon to uh, uh, to uh, parts of Ecuador like where we're working. Uh, which are really on, are on the fringes and have uh, have been forgotten by uh, uh, by society. Very very poor communities. Well, before we get to Arania, I want to talk to uh, you. I want to ask you one more question. So you're involved with uranium uh, through a listed uranium company. What is your view on uranium today, and what is your position with regards to nuclear power? Well, I think that. Um, in the last year, I've traveled to China and I've traveled to New Delhi, and um, you both places you can cut the uh, the air with a knife. Uh, I've never seen air pollution uh, the way it is, and uh, and really the um, the solution to, to the the problem is going to be nuclear. Um, it's not going to be um, hydro. It's not going to be wind power. It's not going to be solar. Um, the the Indians are building new uh, reactors. The Chinese are certainly building a huge number of reactors, and there are more that are on the drawing board. And they have to stop burning coal. Now in Germany, when um, right after the Fukushima uh, accident, uh, 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 Angela Merkel. Um, in a very knee-jerk fashion, decided that Germany was going to get out of the business of, uh, of, of um, nuclear plants. And so uh, she immediately announced uh, plans to shut down the plants. 
And what have they been doing? They've been buying nuclear energy, nuclear electricity from France, and they've been burning soft coal. And this is a soft coal is incredibly destructive because it's very sulfur rich and creates acid rain. And I remember back in the 1970s when people were complaining about the burning of soft coal and how it was killing the the Schwarzwald, the uh, the Black Forest. Well, this is all coming back again, and it's all from uh, a nutty, uh, nutty extremist politics. Um, there has never been um, a major loss of life accident with uh, with nuclear power, and uh, you know there's uh, um, unfortunately it's always in the media how people glow in the dark and all this kind of stuff, which is all uh, total nonsense. Uh, people have this this fear of of, of nuclear energy, uh, but it is actually uh, compared with uh, with coal. It's uh, much, much safer. And um, I think that uh, it, it really is, uh, should be part of the, uh, the mix of any uh, country's uh, um, uh, total uh, allocation for energy. Uh, it, it has to be part of the mix. Um, I am bullish on the price of uranium, but it's going to take some time for it to come back. Um, it's just been smacked in the head by the, the Fukushima incident and, uh, and the Japanese shutting down all the nuclear uh, power in installations in the country. Um, they are one by one coming back online. And um, so we will, um, we'll, uh, uh, we'll, we'll see a resumption of, of the usage of, of uranium. Um, and uh, of course, uh, China is going to need uranium to uh, uh, to um, to power their their cities. But the thing is, right now, um, with the uranium price uh, well under thirty dollars, uh, there's no incentive to go out and explore. And really, we need a, a base price of seventy, eighty dollars uh, to kickstart uh, uh, the uh, uh, the exploration business again. It, it will happen in time, uh, and it really is only a matter of time uh, when we go into a deficit position and uh, and the, 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 the various uh, utilities are going to be fighting to get a hold of uranium. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not today. Well, I appreciate your views on that, and I absolutely agree. We've uh, spent a number of hours and months and years working on this sector uh, since 2017 and and I can tell you that uh, I believe that the fund will start next year so we've got some significant uh, headwinds coming uh, including a whole new round of new term contracts coming up uh, certainly starting potentially after this 232 decision that comes up uh, here in a few weeks potentially by Trump so mm -hmm. I'm I'm absolutely in, a, in concurrence with you that uh, the nuclear power uh, is is a huge uh, piece of of what we need for energy going forward, and uh, uranium has to find its way out of the ground through the fuel cycle and into utilities' hands, and so that's going to be quite a process. So it's going to be exciting to see what takes place over the next three to five years in the sector. So let's move on to the company. I want to say that the shares have performed exceptionally well since you set up the company and the extensive land package. 
in fact, if you look at the share price, quite honestly, uh, over the last couple of years, Keith, you'd never know that there's been a lack of sentiment and demand for your company shares, which has been absolutely rare in this market. So well done. Thank you. Now, with that, I want to uh, when you when you manage a company and set it up for value creation, when you balance things like G&A costs, expiration costs, capital preservation, financings, timing, et cetera, what are the key parts reflecting on success at the company thus far? Well, it's uh, it's a bit of a tightrope, but uh, you know we uh, we run a, a pretty lean and mean operation. Uh, we're not in uh, in an office building with uh, uh, um, which is uh, which would be classed a, a class A uh, uh, site in in the city of Toronto. Uh, we've got a fairly small office here, and and uh, um, I, I'm not going to say that we don't pay our employees much, but uh, uh, maybe we don't. <laughs> Certainly, I don't get anything. But um, it's uh, yeah, we 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 keep an eye on the expenses, of course, and uh, not just here, but uh, down in Ecuador as well. And um, yeah, so I think part of um, our success—it's uh, certainly not just due to me. It's uh, working with a very dedicated group here of professionals. Uh, and I'd like to single out Richard Spencer, who's the president of the company. Uh, Richard spent many, many years working in Ecuador um, uh, prior to Irania. He was the uh, uh, he was the general manager of IM Gold in Ecuador for a number of years. And before that, he was working for a company called Gencor out of South Africa and discovered a lot of the porphyry coppers in the country. So um, because of that, um, you know, we both have a lot of on-the-ground experience. We know what has to get done, um, and we don't have to go through the learning curve because uh, we've already done that. We did that years ago. Um, so we can just really um, get to it and, and start to, um, to maximize our, our chances of success for the, for the shareholders. It is a very, very large land package, and that's completely by design because I've learned uh, through uh, working many, many years in, in the business that when you have a postage stamp piece of property uh, with one or two mineral occurrences on it, the chances of you coming up with something that are, it's, is going to be um, big or even simply commercial and economic are, are pretty slim. It's almost like a Hail Mary thing. Um, when you have a project, though, that has um, mul it's multi-commodity, uh, it's uh, it's different uh, types of ore-forming environments like we have, uh, then uh, you maximize your chances of of success. So uh, rather than have uh, one or two uh, gold uh, occurrences or gold showings or or uh, things to to drill. Um, we've got right now um, over a, a dozen gold-silver um, anomalous areas that uh, we're investigating, and uh, we found copper now over uh, a, a, a distance of 22 kilometers, uh, almost without break, uh, and that's been unprecedented. I don't know of any other company that's done that for uh, for maybe 50 years. 
you know, I say with our project, it, it's like an embarrassment of riches, and it really is. Uh, now what we need to do uh, is the unusual situation where we have to uh, go through, it's almost like triage uh, in, in the emergency department in a hospital. Uh, we have to select uh, the things that are going to be um, generate the most bang for the buck for the shareholders and as fast as we can. Uh, and so that we're doing it cost effectively and we don't have to experience the dilution in the company. You know, I've learned the hard way, so has, has Richard, and um, we're giving it our best shot and uh, we're finding lots and lots of stuff, uh, which is what we're supposed to be doing. And, um, you know, we'll, uh, I, I think the odds are extremely good in our favor. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not just uh, talking out of my hat here. Uh, I pour, put $4 million U.S. into the company um, fairly recently in a rights offering. Uh, so I certainly have a lot of skin in the game, and I put my money where my mouth is. Uh, I've never seen a project like this in my 30, uh, 36 years of working in the business. It's uh, It just keeps giving and giving. Um, and uh, I think we're in a, a very unique position where uh, because the land package is so big and, and so productive, uh, we've got potential to joint venture parts of it or um, sell parts of it off uh, and keeping the best for ourselves. Uh, we've got a lot of latitude here to do various things. So t tell us about the targets uh, that you've come across at Lost Cities and then also Tell me what you're going to be doing over the next, uh, well, over the next 18 months. The original premise of the company was to find uh, the lost cities. And um, we've got a couple of things up our sleeve that we'll be talking about fairly soon. Uh, a couple of, uh, of, of new techniques uh, that we think will, will speed up the expiration. They're not going to escape us. The, uh, the methods that we're using right now uh, the stream sediment work uh, eventually will find these things because when you uh, disturb the ground, uh, especially where there's a gold deposit, you're going to leave traces uh, in the in the drainage in the streams uh, that can be picked up. And uh, we use a technique, uh, stream sediment work. It's analyzing uh, clay and silts. Uh, it's very very sensitive, and it's the same sort of technique that um, that uh, uh, people, environmentalists use uh, to find heavy metal pollution in, uh, in areas where uh, industries have been dumping where they shouldn't be dumping. Uh, it's a very, very sensitive technique to find um, uh, metals, uh, not, just, uh, not just gold and silver, but lead, zinc, really the whole gamut. So uh, we've got a, a lot of stuff Almost every week, we're generating new anomalies and new things that have to be chased up. Um, the gold cities, the the uh, the lost cities, will come in time. Uh, we've only explored 45% of our project right now, so we've still got quite a ways to go, and they're hiding somewhere in there. But we will find them. Um, what are we planning to do in the next 18 months or so? Well. Um, I would really, really like to get some drill holes, some drills out on, on the copper. 
and we found uh, high-grade copper and silver on the surface. Uh, starting last October, uh, the geologists started to bring in uh, large chunks of this stuff, and I'm talking about uh, pieces up to maybe a foot across, two feet across, um, uh, bringing, you know, uh, kind of uh, lashed uh, in their backpacks and lashed to their backs, uh, bringing these things and walking two days with them. It's it's incredible feat. I, I don't know if I would do it. <laughs> But uh, they're uh, they're they're always in competition. These guys they're trying to out outdo each other, which is uh, is a healthy competition. Anyway, we found these things. We've been able to trace them back to outcrop where they're actually uh, popping out of the ground, and we've sampled them. And uh, really, the next uh, stage is to do some geophysics on them and then get them drilled. Uh, because all of this stuff we found the surface is in sediments. This is a very, very important thing for your listeners to understand. Uh, this is not porphyry-style copper. Uh, this is in sediments. Uh, so these are bedded rocks, sandstones, and shales. Uh, and the uh, the kind of grades that we've been finding in these rocks are, are exceptional. 1%, 5%, 10%. Um, and always with silver, uh, maybe two or three ounces per ton of silver uh, in in each sample. Um, so that's significant. And um, but this uh, seems to be more or less like a flatline sheet. And we've traced the thing out for 22 kilometers. Now I'm not saying that it's going to be a mine that's 22 kilometers long, because that's kind of crazy talk. Uh, certainly at this stage, anyway. Um, but there are going to be hot spots in there where it's going to thicken up and uh, maybe the grade will be higher and uh, that's what we have to find and then uh, pin cushion it with uh, with drill holes um, because um, because this stuff is oxide copper it means that you will not have to make a, a flotation mill uh, and produce a, a sulfide concentrate to ship overseas to a smelter we could actually, through uh, a process called SXEW, solvent extraction, electrowinning, uh, produce copper on site. And there already is on the drawing board a three and a half gigawatt uh, hydroelectric project very, very close by. Um, that's uh, already been scoped out by the government. And um, yeah, so it's uh, it's a fantastic thing that we found here. Um, you know, you can find these uh, brilliant green rocks uh, right on the surface. Uh, if any geologist had stumbled across these things five years, 10 years, 20 years ago, um, it would all be gone. It all would have been mined out. Um, you know, I like to say that uh, nobody has found something on kind of the size and scope of this stuff since uh, uh, since uh, Leopold II was the king of Belgium in in the Belgian Congo, which is now the 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 DRC, um, and uh, I think we've got a similar sort of ore forming environment here, but uh, uh, time will tell, and um, we have to uh, certainly get some drills on it. So that's what's going to happen. Uh, I'm looking at the fourth quarter this year um, to get some drills on the copper. Um, we will be continuing to drill gold targets as well and generating a lot of new targets as well from, from our stream sediment work. Well, it sounds like it's going to be some exciting times ahead. And 
you, you mentioned the DRC and, and some of the work that's going on over there with, with Robert Friedland and so forth. And it really does sound uh, what you have going here is, is highly uh, attractive. So I wanna talk a little bit about, go back to company structure for a moment. Uh, is there any other key management that you'd like to share with us and talk about? And then also, can you, we know you're a big shareholder, but are there some other key shareholders you'd like to mention that are on the roster? Um, uh, well, um, let me see. Uh, I think an important part of our uh, company uh, is our uh, corporate social responsibility group. And, um, you know, in terms of risk on the project, you know, there's, there's geological risk, there's political risk, there's social risk. I think the social risk for us is perhaps the, the, the greatest thing. Um, we do have a lot of indigenous people. Uh, well, not a lot, but s small villages of indigenous people uh, living on our concessions. And before any of our exploration people go into the project, uh, we send our CSR people uh, in their um, uh, corporate social responsibility people in to engage with them, explain what we want to do. And um, sometimes we're told, uh, no, we don't feel comfortable with you people coming in. And it may take um, several visits. Um, quite often they'll see us working with uh, people from the adjacent community and uh, the way to demonstrate transparency to uh, the local stakeholders is to work alongside them and then they certainly see that you don't have horns sprouting out of your head <laughs> uh, and and so it's it's important to to engage with them and and look you know they're they've their descendants have been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and, and we're uh, the new kids on the block. And, uh, and certainly uh, it's only right that, uh, that we talk to them and, and uh, engage with them and, and uh, be very, very respectful of, uh, of, of both them and, and their, uh, their society and, and their culture. So that's what we do. Um, so I, I want to single out uh, our, our CSR team, which I think is uh, extremely important to the uh, to the health and and the uh, uh, going forward for the company. <laughs> well, I wanted to I wanted to highlight Keith too, as as you covered it, because it was something I was going to ask. Because I think I think that I, I suspect that the company has a very good setup going, and you have to start the social work right out of the gate, even though, you know, it's going to be a process that will develop over many, many years. And I think you've uh, you've nailed that. So the, the, the connection with the local community and the connection with the government in a place like Ecuador is absolutely a, a real key factor and kind of a cornerstone. My other part of my question was, is uh, on the shareholder roster, was there any other uh, key shareholders oh, yes. that you wanted to mention? Mm -hmm. Well, before I answer that, I, I just want to say, um, you know, there are people out there uh, who consider CSR work to be fluff. Uh, I am diametrically opposed to that kind of, 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 of discussion, that kind of, of talk, because I've seen how things can very easily go sideways. Um, and besides, uh, you know, we, we don't spend a huge amount of money of the companies on CSR projects. I have a private foundation um, which uh, assists and, and helps uh, 
uh, with health and education initiatives for the indigenous people. And we do a number of things that really uh, would not be uh, appropriate uh, to be done uh, with uh, with the investors' money. Um, now, in terms of uh, shareholders, I guess I, I could say uh, after myself, um, probably the largest shareholder would be uh, Robert McEwen. I think he has about 7%, um, and he's uh, the former... Uh, uh, the founder of Gold Corp, and of course he runs McEwen Mining. Uh, he's a good friend, and uh, he's uh, been a solid supporter of us. Likewise, he he doesn't take a salary from his company, <laughs> so I've taken a bit of a leaf out of his book. And then uh, from then on, there's a, a number of, of of smaller holdings uh, of individuals, uh, some uh, uh, family offices, and and uh, and a couple of small funds. No, that's great, and uh, I didn't know that Rob was in there, and uh, certainly good to hear some of that uh, different different uh, mix of the uh, shareholder roster there. I want to move on to another question, and we're almost wrapped up here. Um, is there a desire at the company to look outside of Ecuador to diversify a project pipeline? And then also, you mentioned JV, which I which was starting to pop into my head because we've seen some other JV startup in the country. Tell us about any JV potential, if you're open to that, and then also, what about that pipeline potentially outside of Ecuador, or do you feel like you've got your hands full? Well, I, I think we've got our hands full pretty much right now, um, though, you know, if something should uh, should pop up, which is just too irresistible to, to walk away from, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm always uh, open to... Uh, to make money for the shareholders, so uh, you know we we'd have to take a hard look at it. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a massive land position. It's expensive to uh, to explore it, um, and we want to really realize uh, its full potential. Uh, at some point, it's going to be too big for us, um, and uh, I would like to spend other people's money, um, you know. And if we could have a situation. Where we have a, a carried interest, I don't know. Let's say 25, 30 percent carried interest, whatever uh, we can negotiate, uh, up to either a production decision or um, a uh, reach of nameplate capacity, or who knows what. You know, whatever the parameters are. Um, but uh, that would be a, a great thing. Um, you know, otherwise uh, we look forward to a lot of uh well not a lot but uh uh further dilution in the company the, that will come but we have to create the value we have to create the value and get the share price up so uh when we are uh, taking dilution we're not uh, pushing uh, as much uh, paper out to the market each time and uh and that's that's the plan um it's very very simple it's the sort of plan that uh, any junior miner should be following, um, but uh, we we think we got the tiger by the tail here, and uh, um, I I know for a certain fact that uh, uh, that the majors are watching us. Um, they love the the fact that we've got this huge land package, and uh, and the fact that with very minimal effort we're starting to uh, to make discoveries. So it's a, it's a fantastic piece of real estate. 
Well, I would hope so some of the other CEOs and, and maybe some of the, the folks that might be a, a CEO of a junior mining company that listen to this, uh, take your words of advice because uh, I think it often gets missed and messed up. Um, at the end of the road with Arania, tell us what you'd be satisfied with as a final product coming out of this company. Uh-huh. Hmm. When, when Aurelian was sold, um, we got the value for Fruta del Norte, but uh, we had made over 30 uh, bedrock gold discoveries, and we just had discovered a number of porphyry coppers as well, uh, none of which we got paid for. Um, a lot of those peripheral targets now are joint ventured between London Gold and Newcrest, um, so Lundin's getting the benefit of them. Uh, but we didn't get the benefit. We we just simply didn't move fast enough and get the job done. That's not going to happen this time. Um, certainly, uh, uh, this company is is firmly run by myself, uh, and uh, together with Richard, we've got a very very different board from uh, um, from the Aurelian days. Uh, none of the the former people uh, from Aurelian are are around in the management. It's, uh, I guess, a new broom sweep, sweeps clean. So we're, I think, uh, I, I've learned a lot of lessons, um, uh, not just uh, from dealing with the government or dealing with the geology or everything, but also dealing with, with people and dealing with markets. Um, so I, I don't necessarily want to see uh, a repetition of, of what happened um, be, before. We we did get a very nice price for. Aurelian, but it went for sixty dollars U.S. or sixty dollars Canadian per ounce. The same company, Kinross, turned around several months later and paid a thousand dollars per ounce in the ground for Tassiast in Mauritania. So I think really we should have got a lot more money for it. Uh, I worked very hard to bring a white knight in, and unfortunately it didn't happen. So you know this time around I'm going to see to it that. Uh, uh, we get the the maximum bang for our buck. Well, it sounds like you've set the bar pretty high, Keith. So uh, you've got your work cut out for you. And I think if there's someone who might be able to get there, it could be you. So there are uh, another a uh, handful of other names in Ecuador advancing projects. Why should investors be looking at your company as their vehicle? What would you say to potential investors? Uh, well, you know, when when Aurelian made its discovery, and just going back to that again, we didn't have a lot of shares out. I think we only had uh, 29 million, and that's one of the reasons why it popped so much. Uh, now, um, having uh, not that many shares out can be uh, a double-edged sword because you don't have a lot of liquidity. You can gap down as well as gap up. But certainly when you have a, a nice, nice discovery, uh, and certainly uh, Fruta del Norte was world class, it can gap up uh, very, very fast and go, uh, you know, huge. So um, I think that, uh, well, gosh, it'd be nice to do that again. Um, it, it's a hard act to follow. And uh, in the words of, of, of Mark Twain, uh, history doesn't often repeat itself, but it often rhymes. <laughs> so I, I'm just hoping that we can uh, we can we can do it again, and uh, and and make a, a whole load of money for the uh, uh, for the investors. Now I am not a person who 
uh, wants to go out and create a new mining dynasty and all that nonsense and, and put the thing in production. Certainly that's not anywhere on my radar right now. Um, the idea would be to uh, get it to a certain stage and then uh, the exit strategy would be uh, to uh, to sell it on or to JV it or, um, uh, you know, um, those sorts of things uh rather than um go through the pain of uh of trying to put these things in production i don't have anyone on my board uh, or anyone in the company with production experience it's a whole different um skill set uh and you certainly better know what you're doing before you embark on it and there's a lot of junior companies that have gone bust uh trying to change them uh turn themselves into mid-tier producers um it's uh it, it's it can be a, a very very difficult process especially if you don't have um any uh international contacts in uh in in the banking um banking business to uh to go and out and and get the money because we're not talking about small money money at that point we're talking about uh hundreds of millions uh, maybe even billions of of dollars that have to be raised uh, to actually build the mine and build the infrastructure. That's not something that I want to do. I'd like to leave the money, some money on the table for the next company uh, to come in. It would be nice um, to uh, for the shareholders to retain a, a piece. Uh, but at the end of the day, we are a, 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 um, a public company and uh, we're, we're vulnerable to, uh, to a takeover and if uh if a deal comes in that uh that the shareholders uh, uh like that'll be it the company will be sold on so uh and then uh then i suppose i've got to hang up my boots for another 3 weeks or so before i start the next venture <laughs> <laughs> well certainly the the big hunters are looking at elephant country and uh you're in elephant country, so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Yes. Keith, we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and insights, wisdom with us today. Uh, we hope you come back uh, soon. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.